0: To study your word, we ask that you enlighten us by it, use your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see your truth for the ages in a world that sells the opposite. We ask that you implant these things in our mind so that they may be a source of growth for us and so that we may digest them and metabolize them and walk in your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we saw an introduction to the final two books, of the final two chapters of the book of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66. As we saw last time, these final chapters are God's answer to the prophet's impassioned prayer that immediately precedes chapters 56, 65 and 66. The prophet's prayer was that God would do something about the pathetic condition of Israel. That God would act to do something and to intervene on behalf of a sinful, rebellious, broken Israel. And so these final chapters of the book are the climax of the book. They're the culmination of the principles, the precepts, the doctrines that the prophet has been revealing as the servant of God. And they find their culmination in the final two chapters of the book. This is what the book has been moving towards and what we'll see is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Actually, there are a lot of unpacking of prophecies that were given earlier in the book, but then we get more detail about them in the final two chapters. Our passage today is verses 1 through 7 of chapter 65. Let me read that. And then we'll circle back and look at it in a, more, in a little more detail. Chapter 65, verse 1 reads like this. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. Both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says Yahweh, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Here what we see in the first seven verses of chapter 65, is God extending his salvation and his intimacy to Israel. He extends it to Israel, but she rejects it. She responds with rebellion, so God turns to another. He offers his love to Israel, and his lover rejects him. So he extends his love to another. This is what we're going to see In these verses, he offers his salvation and his intimacy to one who doesn't know him, to one who doesn't seek him, and he judges Israel. Look at this in a little more detail in verse 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this verse because it's a treasure trove of theology. Theology is who God God is and what he does. It reveals Yahweh and what he is up to. Let's begin with who God is. We see two characteristics, two parts of the essence of God here in verse 1. We see his sovereignty and his love. We see it in the two declarations that are upfront in this verse. I permitted myself to be sought, and I permitted myself to be found. In the Hebrew, it's a lot less words than in our English. In the Hebrew, it's just two words. Nidrashti, nidseti. Nidrashti, I permitted myself to be sought. Nidseti, I permitted myself To be found. These are two Hebrew verbs that are in the nifal stem. In this context, they have a reflexive sense to the to the verbs. Just to kind of refresh your memory, back in grammar school, everybody loved grammar school, right? We're like, yeah, grammar. Well, what happens in seminary is everybody comes into seminary with that same attitude. I hated grammar, and really, when you leave seminary, you know much more about Hebrew and Greek grammar than you know about English grammar. Because English grammar, you just, maybe you weren't that way, but I was that way in school. And what the professors do in seminary, as Jerry knows well, is they, uh, they, they beat on you. You will learn grammar. You will learn Hebrew grammar, and you will learn Greek grammar because they reveal the majesty of God. They reveal the essence of God. And what we're seeing here are two divine characteristics of God, the sovereignty and the love of God through this, these reflexive verbs in the nifal stem. Reflexive is a verb that has as its subject and as its object the same person. So like, I enjoyed the movie, or maybe better said, I enjoyed myself. At the movie. That's reflexive. I'm the subject. Myself is the object. I enjoyed myself at the movie. Enjoy is the verb. It's, it's functioning in a f- reflexive sense because the subject I and the object myself are the same. Or the bird washed itself in the water. The bird is the subject. Itself is the object. Washing is the verb. So what we're seeing here is this kind of, this reflexive sense of the niphal stem. The Greek grammar is teaching us that God is in absolute control. Complete control. Control of those who seek him and control of those who find him. Control from beginning to end. God is revealing his sovereignty. That's really what sovereignty is about. Sovereignty is about him being the complete Absolute, if I could use a street term, boss. The complete authority, the complete boss. In verse 1, Yahweh is both the subject and the object of both of these verbs. Yahweh is permitting himself to be sought and permitting himself to be found. Do you understand that you can't even look for God unless he permits you to look for him? That's what he's saying here. You can't even seek him out unless he allows you. To seek him out. And if he allows you to seek him out, then you can't even find him unless he allows you to find him. I mean, that's what it says in verse 1. This is a statement of absolute sovereignty. The breadth and the scope of God's sovereignty is absolute. It's eternal. God is revealing not only his sovereignty here, but also his love. Because in his love... He does, in fact, permit us to seek Him out and to find Him. God does this through three acts of love that are revealed throughout the Scriptures. Act number one, He gives us free will. We're not robots. He doesn't make us like robots or like the beasts of the field, like that deceiver by the name of Darwin sells the culture and sells our children and sells Christians. We're not made by God as animals or as some sort of machine. He gives us the ability to choose for Him or against Him, which is to say the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. I use free will intentionally. I'm not saying volition. I mean, volition is a a good word to use. Human responsibility is a good phrase to use, but I think the better word to use is free will because the Scripture uses the word will. Remember Jesus when he's looking at Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, long, how often I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not, somebody knows the word, willing. You were not willing. He gives us will. This is an act of love by God. He gives us free will to choose for him and cho- or choose against him. And the second act of love from God is that, in fact, He reveals Himself so that our free will has something to respond to. The revelation of God. The revelation of God is so powerful that it always produces a response. You can't ignore the revelation of God. The revelation of God always produces some response, either positive or negative. And the third act of love that God does for us is he exposes our need to believe in him. He doesn't just leave us in the just condemnation that we so deserve. No, Jesus teaches that in John chapter Jesus teaches in John chapter sixteen verse eight, that the Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. He exposes our need. These are acts of love to give us free will, to reveal Himself to us. And to expose our need to believe in Him. My point is this. Salvation is an act of God. Don't flatter yourself. Your faith is not that impressive. You're not saved by your faith. Let me say that again. You're not, your faith doesn't save you. God saves you. Now it's true. He uses your faith to save you. But God saves you. Salvation is an act of God from beginning to end. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works. It's an act of God that you have been plucked out of the slave market of sin. It is a pure act of grace. God allowed you to seek him out. And God after you sought him out, allowed you to find him. This is what we are seeing here. But the minute I say, the minute I speak of the sovereignty of God, I also have to speak of the free will of man. Because although he is sovereign, he is also loving. And he gives us the ability to choose for him or choose against him. He doesn't make us as robots and stick his finger in our brain and flick the switch on to positive The question, though, in verse 1 of chapter 65 is who is it who is seeking and finding God? Who is it who is being saved? Let's look at the verse again one more time in verse 1. I permitted myself, Yahweh says, to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I. By the way, literally in the Hebrew what it says is, look, it's me. That's what here am I literally is in the Hebrew. Look, it's me. Look, it's me. It's it's repeated there twice. And then here's what we need to drill down to. To a nation who did not call on my name. Who's the nation here? Yahweh says twice to a nation who does not call on his name. Look, it's me. Look, it's me. Who's the nation that he's referring to? In the Hebrew, the word for nation here is goi. Now usually when you see goi, goy in the plural is goyim, usually that means the Gentiles, the Gentiles as a group, but this is not in the plural. This is in the singular. Goi. That leaves us two options when we're studying this word goi, when we're trying to understand who the nation is. We really have two options. Option number one is it means a people, a people group, a people. Option number two, it means a specific nation, whether that's a specific Gentile nation or Israel. Goy, in the singular, is sometimes, not often, but sometimes used to refer to Israel. So under option two, it could be Israel. It could be a specific nation or a specific Gentile nation. Or under option one, it could just be a people Let me talk about option two for a minute. We can exclude a specific particular Gentile nation, I think, up front because of the context here. There's no reference to any particular Gentile nation. There's no reference to Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. So I don't think nation in verse one is referring to a particular Gentile nation. So then the question is, is it referring to Israel, which, as I say, goy is sometimes, although rarely, used to describe Israel. The NASB, which I'm reading from, says a nation which did not call on my name. The New King James reads something different, right? If you're reading from the New King James, it says a nation that did not call by, that was not called by my name. It's the preposition bah. Bah in the Hebrew can be translated as by or on, either way. That's the difference between the, these two readings, these two translations. In ASB, call on my name. New King James, call by my name. Really, either translation is permissible in the Hebrew. But regardless of how you translate it, if you translate it as a nation that did not call on the name of Yahweh, or you translate it as a nation that is called by the name of Yahweh, either way, we know we're not talking about Israel. Because it says a nation that is not called by my name. Well, of course, Israel is called. That's, that's Israel's identity, is the people of Yahweh, the nation of Yahweh. So if you're reading from the New King James, you say, well, okay, we can't be talking about Israel here. The nation cannot be Israel. If you're reading from the NASB, you also have to conclude that the nation here is not Israel because, of course, Israel, even when Israel was in rebellion, there was always a remnant who called on the name of Yahweh. So the nation here is not a specific Gentile nation. It's not the specific nation of Israel. It's not the nations, plural, because it's in the singular. And so by process of elimination, what that means is the word nation is really a people. But what people? What people is being referred to? If it's not Israel, then it's got to be a Gentile people, a Gentile people group, but God doesn't tell Isaiah. God does not tell the prophet who the people is. What's happening in verse 1 is we're getting a prophecy, albeit a veiled prophecy, about salvation, the salvation of a group of Gentiles. Of course, salvation of the Gentiles generally has been prophesied many times in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah foretold that Yahweh's salvation would reach each of the nations, not just Israel. Isaiah forty-five twenty-two: Turn to me and be saved all the nations of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 52, verse 10, Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. That's Isaiah having foretold earlier in the book that Yahweh's salvation would reach the nations, not just Israel. And then also Isaiah foretold earlier in the book, the manner in which Yahweh would bring salvation to the nations. It would be through his servants. Isaiah 49.6, I will also make you, the you there is the servant of Yahweh, a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 42 verse 6, I am Yahweh, I have called you the servant of Yahweh. In righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. The servant of Yahweh, as we studied, is Messiah himself. These are prophecies about how Gentile salvation would occur. But when you see prophecies like this, in the book of Isaiah, for example, about the salvation of the Gentiles, you shouldn't think that the prophecies were saying, okay, Gentiles weren't saved in the past, and now they're going to be saved. You shouldn't think when you see a prophecy like this in Isaiah, we've, you know, there are four prophecies here on the screen about the salvation of the Gentiles. It's not saying that before Isaiah, Gentiles weren't saved, and then with Isaiah, Gentiles are now going to be saved. We know that is not the truth. That cannot be the facts, because the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, is a book that involves a Gentile, written by a Gentile, Job, right? This, we believe that's the oldest book in the Bible. Job is saved. How about the Canaanite king, a king who was saved, a king whose name means king of righteousness. Anybody know who that is? Melchizedek. Right? Melchizedek, Melech, Sadek, Melech in the Hebrew King, Tzadek, righteousness, the king of righteousness, a Canaanite for crying out loud. A Canaanite. Saved. Ruth, a Moabitist, saved. Right? We have all of these Gentiles in the past. How about a prostitute from the city of Jericho? Rahab the harlot. Rahab the whore, saved. In fact, the Messiah is in the line of Rahab the whore because Messiah brings salvation to everyone. Messiah is no respecter of persons. And salvation is available to all. Messiah comes to pay for the sins of all, of the Gentiles and of the Jews. And so, of course, Gentiles were saved way before Isaiah. Isaiah writes in 700-ish B.C. Gentiles are saved way before that. These prophecies are not about how Gentiles will now be saved if they weren't saved in the past. They're prophecies that are communicating something else. What's different about these prophecies is they're communicating the spread of the gospel even to the nations, but there's something even more refined, even more narrowed in verse 1 in the prophecy that is, albeit, veiled in verse 1 because there is a prophecy in verse 1 about this particular nation, which is a nation of Gentiles, primarily Gentiles. What we're seeing is this narrowing of the prophecy and we, about the salvation of Gentiles. Generally... We're seeing a more specific, a narrowing of the prophecy in verse 1. It will, it's that there will be a new entity of mainly Gentiles who have a special, intimate, unique relationship with Israel's God. This is something that would be shocking. To the Israelite mind, no, 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 no. no. Wait a second. Yahweh's our God. We're the one who has the special, unique relationship with Yahweh. But what we're seeing here in verse one is a prophecy that there will be a nation that has a special, unique, intimate relationship with the God of Israel. Not just with the not just with the God of Israel. Not just with Yahweh, but with Yahweh's. To be more specific, with Yahweh's servant, with Messiah, who also, of course. Is God because God is triune? The point is that the goy, the nation, in verse one, is in fact the church. It's the church. In First Peter two nine, the Apostle Peter uses the word nation to describe the church. 1 Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy ethnos. In the Greek, in the Greek, a holy nation. Well, what? Guess what? In the Greek, in with with the word ethnos. It can mean nation, or it can mean a people, just like the word goy in the Hebrew. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is talking about church-age believers there. Ethnos, in this context, means a people. The church is a people made up of primarily Gentiles, some Jews, but the vast majority is Gentiles. Remember, Christianity was initially a Jewish faith, right? Exclusively Jewish there in Jerusalem. And then Jesus gives the order to his disciples just shortly before he, he ascends. They're about to be his apostles. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of of the world, and so Christianity, which started as an exclusively Jewish faith, went to the world. Ultimately, all roads led to Rome, and it went to Rome, and then from Rome throughout at least the known world at that time, and ultimately, it is making its way to the entire world even now. The Gentiles once lived in darkness. Separated from God, separated from God's word, until God sent His apostles to proclaim the light to the Gentiles, Acts 1:8. Here's my point. Isaiah chapter 65 verse one is about you. You and me, we're the ones who are prophesied here, because God had you personally in mind. He had the church. In mind, here in verse 1, the Old Testament is critical to our understanding of God's Word. The reason why we, the Goyim, we're the Goyim, we're the Gentiles. The reason why we study the Scriptures of the Jews, the reason why we, the Gentiles, study the Hebrew Scriptures, and the reason why we study the Hebrew God is because that is the place of blessing. That is the place where we find blessing. Israel's God is our God. We cannot understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament informs our understanding of the New. The Old Testament undergirds the New Testament. It's the context, the backdrop for the New Testament. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the Old Testament is 60% of the books of the Bible. If you're just talking about pages, it's way more than half of the pages in the book. It's 39 of the 66 books. There are only 27 in the New Testament. What we're seeing here is a prophecy from Israel's God for and with respect to us as the Gentiles, Now, the prophet here, Isaiah, doesn't know the identity of the people that God is calling, that God is summoning, that God is allowing to look for him and allowing to find him. The prophet doesn't know the identity of this people group because, remember, the church is a mystery. It was a mystery. It was concealed by God in the Old Testament, concealed from Isaiah, concealed from the prophets, concealed from everyone and so the prophet doesn't fully understand what's happening in verse 1. That doesn't do anything to the, to the inerrancy of Scripture, to the authority of Scripture. It just means God, in the progression of revelation, reveals more than what the human writer knew in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. God waited to call the church. He waited to call the church. He waited to say, look, it's me. Look, it's me. He waited until the servant of Yahweh came to his people, Israel, was hated by his people, Israel, was crucified by his people, Israel, then was resurrected and then ascended to seat to sit at the right hand of the Father. He waited until all those things to permit this nation, this goy, this ethnos, this church to look for him and to find him. And God used the Apostle Paul as his primary messenger to reveal this church that God had concealed from Isaiah and from all of the prophets and from all Of the people in the Old Testament. Look at Colossians 1 verse 25. Paul says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's you that Paul is talking about. That's you, that the servant of Christ, which is to say, the servant of the servant of Yahweh, because that's who Christ is. He's the servant of Yahweh, fully God, fully man, the Messiah. He sends his messenger, Paul, to announce the church to you, to further unpack what Yahweh had revealed to his prophet in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, that his prophet didn't fully understand. A mystery doesn't mean a novel that we say, oh, hey, who's, who's the whodunit? A mystery is, in the Scripture is simply something that was concealed by God, and then God reveals it. In Romans chapter 10, Paul cites our passage. Paul cites Isaiah chapter 65, verse verses 1 and 2. Please turn to Romans 10. There we're going to see Paul rely on our passage in support of his ministry to the Gentiles, his ministry to the church age, to church age believers. There we're going to see Paul explain that Israel rejected her Messiah. And as a result, God has turned to the Gentiles. He's turned to the church. Paul anticipates an objection from a hypothetical person who might say, hey, 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 it's unfair that God has turned from Israel. Paul is going to anticipate an objector, probably a Jewish objector, who would say, it's unfair that God has turned away from Israel and set aside Israel and turned to the Gentiles. Maybe it's because, the objector would say, maybe it's because Israel didn't understand the need to believe in Messiah. Look at Romans 10, verse 19. Here's the, the argument from the hypothetical objector. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Now Paul responds to that hypothetical objection of, hey, it's, it, it, is it really fair that God has turned away from Israel? I mean, did they know? Did Israel know? Keep reading in verse 19. Paul says, first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not A nation, by a nation without understanding, will I anger you? This is a quote from Deuteronomy thirty-two, verse twenty-one. As far back as Deuteronomy thirty-two, God prophesied that Israel would scorn Him, that Israel would would reject and rebel against her Messiah, and God would provoke. This is back from Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy, which is what Paul is quoting here in Romans ten, Deuteronomy prophesied that God would provoke Israel to jealousy to draw her back to him because God took his love from Israel and gives it to another lover because Israel scorns his love, provokes him. At least God takes his love from Israel and gives it to another lover temporarily to be intimate with someone else temporarily. And so this prophecy back from Deuteronomy 32 was that he would leave Israel for a new entity, temporarily leave Israel for a new entity, a primarily Gentile entity who had no understanding, no understanding of God at all, at least not before the prophets, or excuse me, the apostles came. Keep reading in verse 20. Now Paul gets to our passage. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's our two verses. That's verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 65 of Isaiah. Israel scorned God's love, so God turned to a Gentile entity, to a primarily Gentile entity during the church age. What we're seeing in Romans 10 verses 19 and 20 is that the goy, the nation, back from verse 1 of Isaiah 65 is the church. The Gentiles didn't know God before God called them, before God said, look, it's me. The Gentiles didn't know God. Were there Gentile believers? Absolutely. How did God reveal himself to Melchizedek? I don't know. Maybe Melchizedek looked up at the stars and said, God, I want to know, if you're up there, I want to know you. And God somehow revealed himself. I don't know. What I do know is God is just. And God reveals himself to those who want to be him to reveal themselves to him. What we're seeing, though, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, is a reference to the church. Because before God allowed the Gentiles to seek Him and to find Him. We didn't know Him. We didn't seek Him. We didn't find Him. We were separated from His Word, separated from His ways, separated from His salvation, and separated from His, most important, His intimacy and His love. But now we have become so united, this goi, this nation, this ethnos, has become so united with the servant of Yahweh that in fact we are called his wife, the bride of Christ. Of course, the church does not replace Israel, but the church during the church age enjoys intimacy and the affections of God which Israel does not enjoy during the church age. She will again, but today she scorns and rejects God, so God turns to another temporarily. What I'm trying to communicate is that we have an incredible privilege. Don't fritter it away. Don't squander it. Don't be bored by it. We have an incredible privilege that God has said to us, look, here I am. Come. This is what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. And this is what Paul teaches in the New Testament. Then we keep reading in Isaiah chapter 65, look at verse 2. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. God is referring to generations of Israelites who rejected him, including that generation who would engage in the maximum amount of rejection. You don't get any higher amount of rejection when, Yah- when, when Yahweh in the flesh sh- shows up and you hate Him. And you say that He does His miracles in the power of Beelzebul. Another name for the devil. Matthew 12. You don't get any more rejection of that than saying that Yahweh is the agent of the devil and hating Yahweh in the flesh and then clamoring for His death by executing Him on a cross. So this is a reference in verse 2 to the generations of Israelites who reject Yahweh and even to the, to the generation who ultimately will do the maximum amount of, generation that, of rejection, that generation who rejected Him when He was on the planet in the flesh. Then in the following verses, God gives us a description of what rejection of Him looks like. Look at verse 3. A people who continually provoke me to my face. They were open. They were open and proud of their rejection of God. They didn't hide their sin. You might say that they had a pride movement and a pride month. I don't know if it was June for them. Maybe it was another month of the year. But they engaged in their sin not in hiding but in open rebellion and provocation before their God. Keep reading in verse 3. Offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. They engage, in other words, in spiritual adultery, worshiping false gods. Read verse 4. Who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat, is in their pots. This is a reference, this language about sitting among graves is a reference to necromancy, where you consult the dead, you know, a Ouija board kind of deal. Necromancy. Ouija boards are cool, right? Ouija boards are popular. When I say cool, I don't mean uh, uh, approved. I mean from from a cultural context. They're neat, the culture would say. They're cool, the culture would say. And yet, it is, it is dabbling in the occult. Necromancy is dabbling in the occult. Necromancy, or, or a Ouija board, or tarot cards, is consulting demons and seeking power from demonic forces as opposed to power from the one who made all angels, elect and fallen, Yahweh himself. You see, what happened is, In verse 4, they ignored not only Yahweh's power, but also the dietary laws of the Mosaic law, the dietary requirements. That's why you see this language about eating swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat in their pots. Now, one thing I should mention. If you like pork rinds, you want to buy pork rinds at the grocery store? Look, in our house we had pork rinds with pico de gallo and guacamole. We just did. I mean, I got that from my dad. It's good. I do it. I eat it. Why? Verse 4 doesn't prohibit me from doing that, from eating pork rinds. Verse 4 is with respect to the Mosaic Law. Remember, there are two aspects of the Mosaic Law. There is the regulatory aspect and the revelatory aspect as Dwight Pentecost used to teach at Dallas Seminary. There's the regulatory and the revelatory. Christ came and he fulfilled the law, so we're no longer under the regulatory part of the law, the regulations. Now the revelatory part of the law that reveals who God is, his character, his essence, his nature, that goes on for the ages. That's forever. That's never fulfilled or abolished Christ didn't come to fulfill that. He comes to validate it. He comes to display it. The revelatory part of the law. This is why the Ten Commandments, all of them except for the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, are mentioned and repeated in the New Testament because they're part of the, what God values. They're part of the revelatory Aspect of the law, you will have no other gods before me, commandment number one. Commandment number two, you will not worship, excuse me, idols. Commandment number three, you will not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't put his name in your expletives, number one. Number two, don't take it lightly. Don't take it flippantly. That's for the Old Testament. That's for the New Testament. That's part of the revelatory part of God, the revelatory aspect of the law, I should say. Honor your father and mother, commandment number five. Do not murder, commandment number six. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, commandment number eight. Do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. They're all repeated in the New Testament because they're part of the revelatory aspect of God that He condemns sin, it's the distinction between the regulatory and the revelatory aspect of the law. Let's keep reading. In verse 5 of chapter 65, we read this. You say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. That's intriguing to me. What happens in idolatry is the idolater becomes self-righteous. This is so interesting. The idolater becomes self-righteous. I mean, we see it today, don't we? The social justice warrior is so self-righteous about his inclusiveness. I'm so much better than you because you're not inclusive, and I am. I don't know about you, but I cringe. I've come to cringe at that word inclusive because really what they mean often is wicked because they promote the wicked things of the world under the guise of the idol of equality. Because they want to they create homogeneity. They want to undo God's creation. They want to reverse it. That's why they want a man to be a woman and a woman to be a man. That's why they want to alter God's design for sex. That's why they want to alter God's design for marriage. It's not that it's gay marriage or same-sex marriage. It's not. There's only one marriage. It's God's design for marriage. It's between a man and a woman. The other is counterfeit. We shouldn't use the word marriage with the other because it's not real marriage. But what the social justice warrior does in his or her self-righteousness is I'm superior to you. I'm superior to you because I'm inclusive and I have, they're not going to use the word God, they're not going to use the word idol, I have an idol of equality, and you don't promote equality. Please don't misunderstand. I'm all in favor of equality the way God has designed equality, equal privilege and equal opportunity before Kim. I'm all in favor of equality the way the Founding Fathers designed equality, equality before the law, but I'm not in favor of the homogeneity that the culture insists on through their false God of equality where they try and remove the difference between males and females. They try and remove God's design for marriage. I'm not in favor of that at all because my master is utterly opposed to that. God is completely at war with those things. Keep reading in verse 5. These are a smoke in my nostrils, God says, a fire that burns all day long. This is an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, the English word anthropomorphism, is really just two Greek words that are squished together. Anthropos meaning man and morphe meaning form. You squish those together and you get our English word anthropomorphism. What it's saying is, this is a language of accommodation, using aspects of humanity the form of humanity to describe God. We have a nose and nostrils. And so God, who doesn't have a nose, He doesn't have flesh, He doesn't have cartilage, because He is spirit, He's describing the self-righteousness of the idolater in this verse as smoke in his nostrils. When was the last time you had smoke in your nostrils? You know, you're at a, at a campfire and it's all smoky because there's green wood in there or, or something causes it to be smoky and the smoke's in your nostrils. Ah, it's irritating. God is saying, you irritate me. The idolater irritates God, the one who worships a false god and thinks that he is self-righteous, superior to others Because he's worshiping the false god. Smoke in the nostrils is a description of God's all day long. That's what it says in this verse, right? All the day. All day long irritation with this rejection of him. Keep reading. Verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. In verse 12 of chapter 64, the prophet asked God if he would keep silent. Here, God answers. And God says, no. No, I will not remain silent. I will bring judgment. Verse 7, but their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says Yahweh. See, this is generational sin. We've had generational sin in our country for quite some time now. Generational sin is one generation develops these sins that they like. I mean, I like this sin. I like it, the generation says. And it's embedded in the generation. And then what they do is they pass that sin. They create the flavor for the sin, the appetite for the sin, and they pass it to the next generation. But with the next generation, they inherit that sin, and then they turn the volume up a little bit more. Remember those old TVs? Remember the initial TVs? It was a click, click. If you want to change the channel, you know, like three channels. 39, 13. It was ABC, CBS, NBC, and maybe 39. What was 39? Fox, maybe. Whatever it was. And then there was another knob that you could change the volume. Click, click, a little higher. You could hear it go click, click, click. Well, what happens with generational sin is the next generation takes the volume and goes click, click. They turn up the volume on the sin. They intensify the sin. They make the evil exponential. This is what happens in this generational sin. It's not that God disciplines one generation for the sins of the prior generation. It's that the second generation adopts the sins of the earlier generation, and they intensify them. So in that case, there was worship of idols, necromancy, worship of false god. False gods, that was the the sin where they were following the gods of their pagan neighbors. In our culture, we're much more sophisticated than that. We're much more sophisticated than Baal and Dagon and the Ashtaroth and, and Zeus and Apollo. No, 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 no. We're much more sophisticated. Our gods are sex and money and power and leisure and entertainment. And ultimately, those gods, the the king, the, the the one who's on the top of the dunghill of our gods, is me, and you. It's ultimately about us, because all of those other gods this is like <coughs> sex, money, power, leisure, entertainment. <coughs> they all feed me, they feed you, because you're the ultimate god. That's why equality is such an attractive world's definition of equality that's why it's such an attractive idol because it feeds perfectly into us being God because in equality you can't condemn me for what I do that's equality 101 as a governor in the in the northwest said not that long ago equality 101 is You don't say that what I'm doing is wrong and I won't say that what you're doing is wrong. We're equal. I get to do what I want to do and you get to do what what you want to do. And I shouldn't condemn what you do because if I condemn what you do, then ultimately you could condemn what I do. So what happens is you have idolatry that is passed from generation to generation. Our idolatry is different than theirs but it is idolatry nonetheless. Keep reading in verse 7. Both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. Then the last part of verse 7. Because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills, therefore I will measure their formal, former work into their bosom. Worshiping on mountains was often associated with Baal worship. Remember, Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites. They adopted the gods of their, of their neighbors, just like we as a nation have adopted the gods of other peoples. We don't follow the God of our fathers. We don't follow Jesus Christ anymore. Jesus Christ is just one of many gods. He's one of the pantheon of gods that we worship, which is to say he's not God at all. So what's happening in the last part of verse 7 is that God says He will measure their works of wickedness, meaning He will repay them for their judgment. This is what God does. There's always, always, always a reckoning. They scorn me, He says. The Hebrew word there has the idea of taunting and mocking. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. And sadly... Sadly, we mistake God's patience, God's mercy to give us more time to repent. We mistake it as as weakness. We mistake it as thinking God is okay with the sin that I am engaged in. There's always a reckoning. That's part of who God is. Part of the exclusive province of God is that he judges. That's his name in the scripture back in Genesis, the judge of the world. This is why the world rejects judgment, the concept of judgment, the judgment of God, because they reject God. And so they stick their head in the sand. And they dull their senses with the things that feel good of the world. There's nothing wrong with with feel good. God invented feel good. God invented pleasure. God invented sex. God invented leisure. God invented entertainment. God invented money. He invented it all. What's wrong is making those your God and giving to them that which is due to the God who is, to the God who invented those things. Worship. That's what's due him. What we see here at the end of verse 7 is that there is a reckoning always, a reckoning for mocking God, a reckoning for rejecting him. The reckoning will be swift and severe on Israel, and we will see it next time we're together, next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you... Challenges by it, implanted in our souls. We ask that you help us be transformed by your truth. We ask that you give us a worldview that is colored and informed by your truth, so that when we're confronted in a world with false doctrine, false teachings, that our mind will automatically recognize it for what it is, and that our mind will respond with divine truth and will guard us with divine truth. We ask that you protect us with your truth. Protect us and guard us from the ways of the world and from the thinking of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.